Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Salzberg. My co-host is WFIU News Bureau Chief, Daryl Whitminer. And this week, we're talking about learning loss during the pandemic. We have three guests with us who are joining us today. Laura Hammock is the superintendent at the Brown County Schools. Hardy Murphy is clinical professor at the IUPUI School of Education. And Doug Ewells is the uh, Richland Bean Blossom Education Association president. You can join us on Twitter at Noon Edition, and you can send us questions for the show uh, there. And you can also send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. Thank you very much for being here with us today. We have a great lineup of guests. And I want to start with uh, people who have been um, on the uh, the front lines, Laura Hammock and and Doug Ulls, and um, I'll start with Laura about how Brown County students uh, in your school corporation have been learning this year. Have they been mostly in person, online? Has it been a combination? Hi, Bob. Yes. So luckily, um, Brown County Schools has had the ability to be in session since August the 5th. When we returned to school this year, right after the, the um, the shutdown in March, April, and May, and we didn't have any uh, long-term summer programming last summer. It, August the 5th was just a day of absolute celebration, right, as we welcomed students back to school. And we allowed for an option for our families so that any family that was interested could select a 100% remote option. So we had students who were in school uh, all day, every day. And then we did have students, uh, families who chose that 100% remote option. And as we have navigated the school year, it has certainly, you know, truly we look at every day as a gift being able to be in school, but it has not been easy, right? So we have had disruptions due to close contact situations where, you know, a student might have tested positive and then the number of students and staff that are indicated as a close contact that need to be quarantined for the two week sit out period. And then we did have a rough go between November and the Dr. King holiday in January where our secondary schools transitioned to a hybrid model. So we had 50% of our students attending in person uh, every other day. And so um, we were able after the Dr. King holiday to uh, move off of that yellow zone. And we have been all day, every day in person uh, since that Dr. King holiday. And we are, this is the Friday of our spring break. And so it's been a really welcome week and our faculty and staff have just been extraordinary uh, during the last year. And this last week was well-deserved and we're looking forward to finishing the school year strong. All right, thank you. Uh, Doug Ulls from RBB, uh, really happy to hear from Richland Bean Blossom today. What, uh, what's been the status out there? Uh, well, thank you for having me on. 
Um, you pro it's probably not going to be unlike Brown County. We started a couple weeks late, started on the hybrid, like with 50% of the kids in, went for a good while. Then we uh, kind of went all in and that's when the chaos hit a little bit with, again, contact tracing and from fall break to Thanksgiving, it was pretty chaotic. Uh, then we went all remote until Christmas and then crept back in in January with, again, the hybrid. I would say about middle of February, we went all back in. Now, I will say ever since then, it, it's been pretty stable. Uh, but I will tell you, I, I don't think I want to relive the first semester because, again, it was all unknown. Uh, looking back, though, uh, all things considered, um, we're fairly fortunate. You know, it, it was definitely chaotic, a lot of work. But I think, as Dr. Hammock uh, said, I, I feel pretty optimistic from um, going forward to the end of the year, though. Things are looking a lot, definitely a lot better. All right. I want to bring Hardy Murphy in. He's a clinical professor at IUPUI, the School of Education. Uh, so you heard what uh, Laura Hammock and, and Doug Uhl said about their particular schools. I'm sure that the school corporations around the state have all had different experiences. So can you sort of sum up for us this issue of learning loss and how the, how the um, different students might be affected in different ways? Sure, Bob, and thanks for having me on. And I'd just like to uh, say to my, uh, my colleagues out there that uh, I can only imagine um, how difficult it is to be a superintendent or a teacher in, 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 in classrooms as uh, schools reconvene post-pandemic. Uh, so, you know, you have all of my support um, and, and, and my, my commitment as an educator to, to, to really get into this and study this so that the more we learn, the more we're able to share and support our, our, our K-12 educators out there. I think that, you know, one of the things that, um, all districts and schools are going to have to look at is that the pandemic is really redefining how we live as a society. So, and in some ways, you have to understand that, that schools are a big part of our life experiences. And it's going to have some impact as we move, move forward when you look at all the way from things like uh, um, uh, testing for accountability, other legislation that's related to school attendance. It's going to have an impact upon, or it could have an impact upon policies and practices in our schools. Because remember, now students are going back to a situation where they're going to have more time being supervised and engaged than they have been. Uh, these uh, issues uh, kind of impact the way that principals lead and the way teachers go about their business in, in classrooms. Another piece to this that people aren't perhaps looking at as closely as they will uh, are the requirements for uh, social distancing. That has the potential to, to change the structure of schools and classrooms. Um, the management of time is going to be an issue that gets into kind of labor labor management relationships. And the whole idea of K-12 standards, what, what does it mean to matriculate through a school system from one grade level to the next when students have experienced so much learning loss? Is this gonna have an impact upon the number of students that are referred for special education? And many people feel that this is an underfunded mandate. So we're moving into a time where I think everyone should celebrate the fact that schools are reconvening. But I do think we're going to have to step back and become more reflective about how we move forward. We talk a lot about the distance that has been created amongst ourselves and families, students with their peers. 
Um, and we talk about it in terms of the, 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 the fault lines of technology. But in fact, if you think about it, we have to ask ourselves where we would, we would be if in fact the technology was not out there. And I think it's gonna cause us to step back and look at this whole idea of technology as an issue of equity. Just as anything else, there are technology highways, if you will, that exist out in our communities. So the question is gonna become, are our communities situated such that all have equal access to this particular tool, even as we move back into our classrooms and schools? So I wanna ask uh, Laura Hammack to talk about that a little bit. I mean, um, Hardy Murphy just described a, a lot of changes. Are, are you seeing those possibilities and are you prepared for them? I really appreciate uh, Dr. Hardy's outline there, right? So um, absolutely everything that he cited are issues of concern for school districts across the state and across the nation. So as we are planful for tomorrow, so we you know, kind of our efforts have, have been twofold. We, we are uh, quite focused on ensuring that the next school day is a positive school day. So never before have we been so in the moment in our planning. And yet simultaneously and, 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 and quite well stated, we need to be deeply reflective about what we have learned from this experience to ensure that on the other side of this, that the systems and the practices and the, the, the policies that have resulted in, in, in positive change to, to school districts that, that, that that can't be lost, right? And so we are, um, we're, we're facing, I think, a troubling situation in that we have influences that are looking for sort of quick fix, right? We're, we're, we're experiencing you know, one of the, the most substantial uh, experiences that education has ever faced. And I think that school districts are, are being asked to sort of have an answer, you know, yesterday about how to, to work through this. But uh, to Professor Hardy's point, we need, this is the time when instead of being quick to, 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 to act, I think we need to be deeply reflective and ensure that we're taking time to ensure that first uh, safety and security needs of our students and our staff are being met right and and that is all in inclusive of, of social emotional mental health work uh, that has been a deeply rooted component of our response plans in brown county as i've noticed as well um, for colleagues across the state so we are we are definitely in a moment right and 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 that moment uh, is we have an opportunity and I, I think we have an opportunity to be better uh, on the other side of this. And I think we also have an opportunity to really mess this up. So being careful and pragmatic and deliberate in our thinking and in our planning um, and really listening to our teachers and our students and their families so that we might you know, really create a new normal that is one for which we can all be quite proud and for which our students can really soar and achieve. Laura, I'm hoping that you and Doug can talk a little bit about standardized testing because we've heard from the state that this is going to be a good way to measure learning loss. And then some parents say, this is one more thing you're piling on these students who've already survived a really 
tumultuous year. Um, so how is your district handling standardized testing and talking to parents? Yeah, certainly in, in Brown County, this has been uh, this has been a genuine area of sincere concern expressed by parents, expressed by teachers, expressed by our staff across the organization. So uh, all of us have spoken to the fact that this year has been so uh, so tumultuous. We've we've had had student you know we've had the opportunity to be in session, but we've also experienced sort of this revolving door of students in and out because of these rolling quarantine periods that have happened as a result of close contacts. And so, when we have the opportunity for students to be in their seats and in session, it is it is a true celebration, right? And so one of the true sincere concerns that we have about a statewide program for standardized testing this year is the fact that on our best day, we don't have all of our students in, in their seats. We do have a uh, self-selected remote uh, contingent of students that have not been to school yet this year. And it is expected that our 100% remote students do come to school to participate in standardized testing. So to us, it's it's a matter of, of understanding the fact that a standardized assessment will give a school district that moment in time snapshot of how a student is performing this school year. It could be very interesting to see what that data elicits, but the, the unfortunate give with the administration of the assessment is the fact that we will now have to sacrifice weeks of instruction to give these assessments uh, you know, to students in, in grade levels uh, through our eighth grade, the, which is just deeply disheartening and, and frustrating, right? Because every minute this school year counts and matters as we are really trying to recover this learning loss topic that we're talking about this afternoon, to take several weeks and then to also try to pull in our remote learners to a standardized assessment, it, we just question the validity and the reliability of how that assessment can actually, how that data can actually be used, um, you know, uh, from a position of any sort of, um, of of validity. So it's it's a sincere concern. It's a concern across the state. Uh, my colleagues, we are all talking about the very same thing, and uh, quite frankly, are, are frustrated that that the assessment is continuing. Um, because of those those factors that, that we just sort of expanded on. Yeah, and Doug, how are how are you all handling that? And if you can talk about how you're talking to parents and even teachers. Uh, well, as a classroom teacher, just for reference, I'm a high school math teacher out there, uh, 27th year now. Uh, I don't have sort of the inside track, obviously as Dr. Hammock as a superintendent, so I, I don't know all those details. But I would say ditto to probably all that. I'm sure there's a lot of concerns about, first and foremost, we've already lost so much class time. I'm sure that everyone involved is frustrated with losing more class time just for testing. Because I'll tell you from the teacher perspective, just to be honest, and I can't speak for everybody, but for a lot, uh, we don't have a ton of, um, I guess, great feelings for a few day window of testing and, and what it really says about what we do all year, obviously, and throw that into the mix where testing has become part of our evaluations, even if it's not a big part that we always bristle at that. So we know it only taps into a little bit of what we do know. 
Um, however, to my detriment, I always see both sides to everything. And, and I will say that um, one of my colleagues at, at the School of Ed, of all things at IU, said, you know, it's probably really is a good year to get data. That way you really do know what you missed. And as long as schools are held harmless, obviously, because this is such a crazy year, I, I can see that person's point to at least, see, at least have a data point to say, oh, yeah, this is where we fell to. So we at least know where to climb out. Um, so as always, I, I can see both sides, but the, the time loss is, is probably the most frustrating part to, uh, again, echo doc, uh, Dr. Hammock in terms of we need all the class time we can get till the end of May. Doug, I want to follow up on that. As a, as a classroom teacher, do you feel like your students are as far along at this point in the year as they typically would be? Or do you can you anecdotally see that there may have been some learning loss? Um, again, I'm sure it's different at every level, elementary, junior high, and me at high school. I can only speak for myself, but I know among my math department colleagues, seven of us, you know, we knew, you know, with math being a very vertical subject, you know, some learning depends on the next learning. Uh, we knew that we weren't going to get to everything with the schedule we had, the lost time. Um, there's no doubt about that, uh, that they have not been able to learn everything they can. And I just kept trying to tell my colleagues, you know, don't stress. It's not your fault. It's nobody's fault. Uh, I, I know for us in math, anyway, we could not get through everything unless you were really planning to use the phrase, you know, have them drink from a fire hose and throw everything at them. But I don't know that that's a smart approach for high school students, let alone lower levels. So uh, in general, I would I'd be willing to bet that there's, yeah, we definitely have not gotten through everything just from uh, the, the obvious year we've had. Sure. If you have any questions today, we're talking about uh, learning loss and talking about what education has been like during the pandemic. Uh, if you have any questions, you can send them to us on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can also send us the questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. That was Doug Ewells, who's from Richland Bean Blossom. He's the Education Association president. We also have been hearing from Dr. Laura Hammock, the superintendent of schools at Brown County Schools, and Dr. Hardy Murphy, clinical professor at the IUPUI School of Education. And Dr. Murphy, I wanted to ask you about the uh, overall issue of learning loss. I think you talked to our WFYI colleague, Eric Weddle, and talked said that the uh, whole, full extent of this learning loss may not be quantifiable. Um, how do you stand on doing standardized testing this year? And then, you know, can you expand on, on how it may not be quantifiable to figure out how much learning has been lost? Sure, Bob. Um... You know, the testing issue is, uh, it's, there's, it, it exists within a cloud of controversy and has been a very controversial subject. Since the Coleman Report and uh, a nation at risk and the whole idea of whether or not students are prepared to be successful in a global society, and that is complicated math, more by the, the matter of disparities and achievement that are predictable by uh, race and ethnicity. Part of the issue with this testing piece is that um, there really is no reason to reinvent the wheel. Um, the federal government actually has a model, which is uh, a good model to, um, to administer assessments to students for, for um, uh, the, the, the purposes of planning instruction. Um, 
assessing students at this point for accountability purpose uh, is simply inappropriate. And partly that's because the K-12 standards are divided up so that they, they move from simple concepts to more complex concepts with the development of a child. But there is nothing uh, sacrosanct about the progression of those standards. It's something that we do as, uh, as, as educators and as legislators to ensure that a certain amount of ground has been covered uh, uh, as students matriculate. So when they graduate from high school, they're either prepared to continue their education or to enter the workforce. Part of the misnomer here is that we still are focusing only upon reading and math for the most part. And we know that life is more than, than just literacy and more than just computation. In some sense, they are tools to enable us to, to, to participate well in the body politic of our, our communities and our, um, and, 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 and our districts. And, and I think what we have to do is understand that students have been learning during this time. Um, we are on Mars. Students have seen perseverance on Mars. So we've had a number of things that have happened uh, during the pandemic where students have learned. However, they haven't just been focused on what we traditionally focus upon in K-12 education. So the task is to find out how much of what they would have learned they have not. And we know this is exacerbated by a number of things. In my classes, one of the things I have tried to do is make a shift so that when you talk about student engagement, people look at what's happening in classrooms and what students are doing. What the pandemic is forcing us to do is step back a moment and look at the lesson to see what is engaging about the lesson and to design um, engaging lessons and to design instruction that is engaging. We have to know more about our students where they are, what their interests are, what their background knowledge is. If we convert the testing system, not just for this year, but in, for coming years, into one where it is more diagnostic in nature and it becomes a formative assessment, then we're able to support our teachers, our principals, and our superintendents and other educators in a different way. It is a way about developing their ability uh, to teach better in classrooms so that we get uh, the, the student outcomes we're looking for. Probably one of the biggest issues that we're going to have to wrestle with here is, are we able to accelerate? Because the acceleration that we're talking about is going to re require a different use of time in schools and in classrooms and in engaging students. And I'm not sure that bridge has been crossed yet. And I am not sure that our legislature is ready to take these results and then put the resources in schools that are needed to in fact accelerate learning. Can you talk a little bit more about that acceleration? What would it what would it take to accelerate learning? For sure, I think it's going to take more time. And uh, you know, I, I'd leave that to my colleagues who are on the phone with me and those out there. Um, uh, it, it means you're going to have to make sure that what you've got is focused instruction and completely engaged students. And right now, as students come back to class, remember, we're going to have to change both their behavioral expectations and their, the, the teaching and learning experiences that they're going to have to go through in order to make up lost ground. And I don't think you can make up lost ground without understanding that what you're going to have to do is create more opportunities for students to learn 
And that means more time. It also means different kinds of learning experiences. All right, Dr. Hammack and Doug, do you want to react to what uh, Dr. Murphy said there? Uh, he, he sort of threw the ball under your court. Well, first, I um, I just want to take Dr. Murphy's class. Uh, I love listening to you, Dr. Murphy, and, and you are brilliant. And um, I'm just uh, so grateful to learn from you this afternoon. Um, yeah, this is th these are exactly the thoughts that uh, we have been having. This whole um, uh, the first off the you know sort of idea of learning loss, and then paired with this notion of learning acceleration is one that you know is very interesting to us it's the the learning acceleration perspective is really counter to the concept of remediation and so ways in which we can uh, kind of think about this uh, the situation where a student might present with gaps in skills learning acceleration sort of takes the notion that we'll meet that student where that student is and then accelerate and lift off from there. So it does require more time and it, it will absolutely require more resources as we're thoughtful about how we as a district are going to deploy our CARES, our ESSER funds. Um, these uh, dollars are actually required in CARES 3, 25% of which are required to really address this notion of learning loss and um, accelerated uh, learning acceleration. So to that end, you know, one of the pieces that we do find uh, as critically important is that notion of the formative assessment tool as a real resource to be able to identify specifically what skills are missing and then individually responding per student to fill that gap if the gap is present, right? And that's kind of that big question of first off, do we know if there is even learning loss that has happened? And if we know it, then what are we going to do about it? And so to realize that end, you know, this concept of sort of more instruction and innovative instruction through acceleration is something that, you know, is certainly a strategy that, that we will be deploying. And I think that this work is broader than even just classroom work, because what we have found is that our underrepresented populations have certainly, who showed up to the pandemic, right, with a, with, um, a, a spectrum, a gap between uh, skills and knowledge. And then we had the pandemic, which exacerbated that divide that was already present. So asking the bigger questions of how we might be more thoughtful and more collaborative with social service agencies, with healthcare, with being quite intentional with an expansion of early childhood services, right? So this whole, this response is gonna be much bigger than just work that's happening in the classroom critically important that we have work that's happening in the classroom. Uh, but we also have to step back and say to ourselves that first off, our educators are exhausted. This has been the most exhausting um, emotionally, physically, uh, the anxiety that presents uh, for our educators and staff every time that they walk through the, the, their, the school. I've had educators say to me that they're terrified, right, to come to school every day. So that level of stress is significant and there's going to need to be some repair time. So I guess it, being thoughtful about ways in which we can be responsive are ways that we can be um, innovative and dynamic and engaged in the classroom 
And I think also really looking to community partners to advance and lift up and elevate opportunities for students to be social together, uh, to have mental health needs met and begin to really reconnect and engage in a way that again, hopefully we can be better on the other side of this than we were before. Go ahead, Doug. All right, wow. Uh, Dr. Hammock just reminded me that um, I'll stay a teacher and glad I'm not a superintendent right now. Uh, she has a lot of a lot of places to look at and a lot of uh, concerns. But getting down to the teacher level, I think I'll reference Professor Hardy's opening comments about, you know, getting down to the nuts and bolts of, you know, at some point when we have our kids back in, there is some uh, sort of re-socialization to do. And there's a lot of adjustments to do when kids come back in. I know from a teacher standpoint, even having masks on there's there's definitely still a disconnect with teachers and kids and we don't have the collaboration we don't have kids working in groups so kind of moving forward to how do we catch these kids up i think dr hammock and professor hardy both talked about you know pushing standardized tests aside i think locally we really can utilize a lot of those formative assessments I, i'm looking ahead to you know august of 2021 when we get kids back in and see where they are. I think we can better do that than again, a state test and to figure out where the gaps are and then really just use our time as best as possible. But uh, there will be just some of those, I guess, social adjustments because, you know, education is a social activity uh, without a doubt. But I, I think we can do it. We just have to, as they both said, just decide what's most important, find those learning gaps and try to move forward as a team. Dr. Hardy, um, so I, I have a, a 10 year old and one of the things that he's already nervous about is the upcoming school year and is he going to be behind? So with all of this talk about remediation and how we get students back on track, how do we do that without further contributing to their anxiety and this idea that they might be behind? You know, that's a very good question. I think students, um, and talking with your 10 year old. The first thing I would do is uh, help your 10 year old to understand, is, is it a boy or a girl? I wanna get the pronoun right. Hello? He's, he's a little boy. It's a little boy. I, I thought you said boy, but it, it kind of slipped me for a second. Is that um, being a good student is, is, is just like everything else that we set out to do in many ways. Um, Children are intentional about their play. They're intentional about their social relationships. And then what we do is instill in them a certain amount of values that you can call an achievement motivation to do well in school. The problem that he's wrestling with is whether or not he is going to meet the expectations of being a good student and achieving in school. And what we have done is we have instilled in students that that means performing well on a test, doing well on a project, getting a certain grade, becoming proficient, and then you move on to the next grade level. I think what I would talk with him about is what it means to do his very best with anything that he chooses to do. And because he has been successful, he knows what that feels like and that he will be able to transfer those feelings of success and the habit patterns of success and that he will become even more successful when he returns back to school. Sometimes children look at the tasks that we put in front of them and they become anxious about it. I think what I would communicate to, um, to, to my son uh, in this matter is that 
what I want him to do is make sure that he is very intentional about being successful and that the support will be there at home and at school with his teacher so that, so that he is, in fact, successful. That's the approach that I would take. Yeah. Uh, Laura, you mentioned something earlier, just, you know, just being thankful that it's spring break week and everyone kind of gets a break. And, you know, certainly we've all been feeling that. Um, but I, so right now in, in our household, we're really looking forward to summer break. But then, you know, I was reading an article this morning about just a number of schools that are doing summer school. Mm -hmm. Wondering if Brown County is doing anything like that or considering it and what that might look like. Yeah, so we are um, we are be trying to be planful for the next two school years right now, and and part of that, which is all our our response plan to ensure that our students are as on track as they possibly can be. One of the uh, uh, foundations for our planning is identifying the fact that this summer is going to be a summer unlike any other, and that our educators are normally entering the summer exhausted, right? And this is this is truly a new level of exhaustion to which we are concerned, right? Sort of toxic levels of stress that need to be responded to with intention and with care. So our summer programming for summer of 2021, this summer, is going, we are going to provide that option for families that are interested, but it's not going to be as comprehensive as what you might see in some other school districts. In fact, other colleagues are having, you know, sort of massive, um, you know, day-long uh, summer school programs to to catch students up. And while there might be value there, we have just um, embraced the notion that this summer for Brown County Schools is not going to be that summer for us. Instead, we are being thoughtful about using those CARES dollars for ways in which we can expand a profound tutoring program to happen during next school year, and then to be quite responsive with summer programming in summer of 22. Another component of this, which might strike you as strange, but we are loving, and it's, it is different. It is, um, you know, I've, I've not heard anyone else talking about this, but when we look at Brown County and the extraordinary natural resources that we have around us, we are also wrapped with the highest number of camps that are in uh, that are located in, in Brown County. Uh, so many families uh, with means uh, from across the state and, and quite frankly across the nation send their children to summer camps that take place here in Brown County. We are uh, looking to partner with camps that are located within our county and actually use resources so that uh, underrepresented populations of students can actually go to summer camp. We believe that what has to happen now is repair. And while academics are critically important, and you know, we, are, we do not want to leave one student behind, right? What we're being quite thoughtful about in our response plan are ways in which we can get students outside, interacting with each other, and kind of reconnecting to their childhood. So uh, those are just some of the thoughts that, that we've been having as an organization that are a little bit different from that standard typical summer school program. We're talking with educators today about uh, learning loss and about what it's been like to educate students during the pandemic and what comes next. If you have uh, questions for us, you can send them to news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition and also send us questions there. I may be entering some uh, difficult territory here, but but I hear all of you speak and 
the conversation that we're having today seems, um, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it just seems different from a lot of conversations that go on with the people who are uh, in the state legislature and making laws and deciding about standardized testing and things of that nature. So I guess I'm, I'm asking if, first of all, I'm sort of checking my reality. And so if you think I'm wrong, just go ahead and tell me. But uh, secondly, how can we, how can we bring the lawmakers and the educators more in line um, to try to serve the total student. Doug, I'm gonna ask you to take that first. Oh, geez, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, I do not have the solution to that. If I did, I think we'd have been in a lot better place. Uh, it's been a long 11 years, I will tell you that, in the state of Indiana. Uh, just quite frankly, our state legislators on the whole simply aren't very uh, supportive of public ed. It's, it's, it's nothing I've done. It's not my decision. It is very political uh, by the history. I mean, the facts speak for themselves. And I, I, I am truly, I hate to say it, but I am a at a loss as to how we can convince them that public education is where it's at. I mean, we serve over 90% of our kids and yet we're keep throwing money and money at vouchers and other places. Um, uh, I'll leave it at that because I could go on forever. So, all right, I don't want to get in any kind of trouble. So, Dr. Murphy. Yeah, I actually think that um, the pandemic, both in the short term uh, and in in the in the near term and in and looking down the road, is going to affect some real changes in legislation, policy, and practice. Um, and if you think about it, it's having that impact in other aspects of our life. It's having that impact in, in health. It's having that impact in employment. Uh, you know, I once wrote a paper when I was a student that uh, at some point in, in time, technology was going to um, uh, make Dilbert, Dilbert irrelevant. If any of you guys out there remember the Dilbert cartoon, it's where, you know, it, it was about this, this office space that was defined by these cubicles and the kind of conversations that went on. The pandemic has shown us that work is not necessarily in a cubicle within a building downtown, uh, that we redefine work to be something that can happen at home with our children, with our spouses and others. The same thing is going to happen with public education. There will be some families that um, will want more online opportunities at home now than they've had in the past. Um, the state legislature is then going to have to take a look at what its expectations are in terms of educational inputs. That's how much money is allocated for special education uh, and other aspects of public education, including Title I funds from the federal level. And it's also so going to have to look at what it's expecting in terms of outputs. And right now, when we're into this debate or this discussion about standardized testing for accountability, I think as we emerge from this time people period, people are going to understand that more than anything else, the pandemic has shown us that as people, we have to tend to each other in very compassionate and supportive ways. And that the heavy-heeled boot form of accountability does none of that. It does not support students in a compassionate way, and it certainly does not support teachers and other educational leaders out there in our schools and in our districts in a compassionate way. So what we're going to have to do now is back up and talk about what are the purposes of school. 
And yeah, literacy is really important. And yeah, math is really important. But you know what? Those are just avenues into the sciences. They're avenues into the other cultural experiences we have with literacy, novels, books, the nuances of humor. The whole child is something that we're gonna to have to focus upon because right now children are coming back into school stressed. So what we're gonna to have to do is engage in a real support of these students from a developmental perspective and how they process the trauma that they have just experienced. You know, we talk about post-traumatic stress syndrome. We now have post-traumatic pandemic syndrome and it's gonna be walking back into to our school, schools before we know it and educators like Dr. Hammond and, 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 and Dr. Ooze are gonna be dealing with that on a daily basis. So schools are gonna to have to be more compassionate about the way they treat their staff and their students. And the legislature has to understand that what it does up there, the laws that it passed, define both the climate and the culture of the schooling experience. I think a well-articulated message from the different organizations, the teacher organizations, the administrative organizations, something that's well articulated and to the point will be something that can go a long way towards changing the hearts and minds of people in the Indiana legislature. Doug, you have a follow-up? Uh, yes, uh, Professor Murphy reminded me of a comment I had with one of my colleagues at the high school, you know, in the, in the midst of all this year, when we, we were doing a lot of online educating is he said, you know, I think this is going to change the future of education, you know, and, I, and I've mulled on that forever because, as I said, I can see both sides of everything. And, and it, there's some truth to that. I think we're going to have to account for there are going to be some kids that maybe want to stay online. I think schools are going to have to account for that. Uh, but I think my overall impression of living through this year, at least a K-12 model, is there, there's no substitute for face-to-face -face education with these high school kids and i'm sure with junior high um there's just there's just no you, you can't get any better than that I, I can teach so much better and i can see the kids reactions uh but we do have to be mindful as professor murphy said as you know what is it going to look like going forward and and i agree if we have an articulated message it's our best bet to at least convince our legislators that hey uh we are we we know what we're doing this is the path forward uh, and how to convince them that again, still uh, looking for that magic solution. But um, I, I think face to face is, is still without a doubt for, for most kids at, at this level, when you have kids quote being forced to go to school to learn, uh, there's no doubt that they're going to get uh, a lot more out of that. I really appreciate your answer, um, Doug and, and you too, Dr. Murphy, both of you. I, I didn't mean to set up any kind of a um, uh, conflict between the legislature and the, the schools and, and policy and whatnot, but I was so struck by what uh, Dr. Laura Hammock said about um, the need to sort of recover and take care of the of the needs of the the students, so that was kind of why I introduced that legislation or legislature uh, versus public school issue there. Um, I want I want to follow up by, with another legislative issue, though. I, I think that uh, I saw a press release this morning from Shelley Yoder, our state senator, and if I if I am correct, I think she is signing on to a bill that would um, support more civics education in 
classrooms. I guess I, you know, coming through what we've just come through, Dr. Hammock, uh, is that something you would support? Well, it's so funny, Bob, that you bring up this bill. Um, I was fortunate to be a, a superintendent representative on Indiana's Civic Education Task Force. That group uh, was facilitated by the Indiana Bar Foundation, and it was uh, led by Lieutenant Governor Crouch. It was an, an incredible opportunity to engage with a group of, of thought leaders across the state to better understand what other states are doing to advance this, this uh, notion of, of civics education. And, and quite frankly, um, we were we left that work just deeply inspired by some programming that's happening across the nation. And it really connects to um, uh, the ability for Indiana to position itself, this bill does, uh, as uh, you know, kind of a, um, a game changer for, forgive me, this does not sound, it sounds like hyperbole, but it's not, but genuinely to be um, a, a protectant of uh, our democracy. Um, it, it is absolutely true that as uh, the pendulum swung towards more standardized testing and more reading and more study of mathematics that we ended up with a, a lack of the resource of time to be able to spend on the study of social studies and, and sciences and, and, and civics, right? And, and how all of that uh, folds into, you know, who I am as, as a person and, and my role in my community and how service uh, is a critical component, you know, of that um, and the responsibility that, that service plays, um, you know, as, as we grow and develop. So um, I, the, the, I actually was able to testify on that bill just a couple of weeks ago. Um, we believe in, in what it, it advances, which is to be quite intentional um, at the middle school level with uh, bringing back uh, a more intentional focus on, on civics education, you know, better understanding how our government works so that um, we might be better able to participate, um, be more active, you know, in, in our governmental processes. And um, really pleased to see that, you know, both sides were, were very supportive, uh, you know, of the work and, there is a civics commission that would be detailed, you know, after this bill would pass that would then allow for the advancement of other civics programming across the state too. So just a, a really cool bill that I think, um, you know, we're all excited to, to kind of get up and moving because of the impact that it can have on kind of that whole student, whole child. Sarah? I'd like to just get all of you to weigh in on some of the most effective ways you think schools could spend the CARES Act money, the, the new CARES Act money they're going to be getting. Um, Doug, do you want to start and just give your perspective? Well, I will confess to not knowing all the details and the requirements uh, of spending that. I, I think, I feel like Dr. Hammock uh, talked about SEL folks to help out to sort of um, I guess plug in the gaps as well. Uh, but honestly, I will toss the ball over to her and Professor Hardy because I'm sure they have more background knowledge on what this can be spent for, to be honest. Okay. Um, Laura, do you, would you like to address that? Sure. So the way in which we have deployed our CARES 1 and then we've already mapped out CARES 2 uh, is 
you know, CARES 1 almost totally went towards the deployment of getting school up and running, right? So very procedural from PPE to signage to um, providing for um, this plastic guards that, you know, kind of are, are between now um, our educators and, and students and really just quite structural in nature. Also, um, air purifiers, all of that kind of um, just making sure that the space itself was as safe as it could possibly be. CARES 2 for us, you know, important probably for your listeners to understand that, that these dollars are um, calculated according to your level of poverty, right? So our Title I dollars inform the dollars that we receive for CARES. So um, for a district like Brown County, just to give you a little bit of perspective, CARES one uh, elicited about $300,000 for our school district. CARES two is about $1.1 million. So these are pretty significant resources that um, particularly small and rural schools are just not used to, um, to having. So as we map out CARES two, we are very thoughtful to be um, looking at ways in which we can use personnel to reduce any class size issues that we have. We are looking at ways in which we can expand our social emotional learning and our diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives. These dollars will be paying for folks to be uh, paid for time outside of traditional workday and tutoring and then as well as summer school. We still will have those PPE needs, so ways in which we can ensure that our schools are as safe as they can possibly be. And the technology divide still is an issue in Brown County. We have used CARES resources. We actually applied for a CARES grant that we received, competitive grant, to provide internet hotspots and actually hook on families to one of our local internet service providers. And then um, we are looking at expanding uh, again our, our nursing team so that we can uh, have um, more qualified nursing staff uh, in, in and across the district. And so all of that it, to say that it's incredible when you're looking at a million dollars and then it's gone, right? So it, it's, it's amazing, uh, you know, running schools during the pandemic, it is not cheap. Uh, I, I'll never forget when I heard about what one gallon of hand sanitizer cost and then replicating that out and trying to be thoughtful about what a school year was gonna look like. Um, it really has been a challenge, but these resources have been critically important in making sure that we can keep our doors open and we're so grateful. Dr. Murphy, we have about um, less than two minutes to go. So I just wanna ask you for a last comment about um, what higher education is doing to look into this issue of learning loss. And are there other things that we haven't mentioned yet that maybe um, some areas of research or some areas that you think could be successful in trying to make sure that we bring these students back to where they need to be? Um, uh, extended time during the school day for learning um, is going to cost money. Uh, extended school years are going to cost money. So those things are going to be critically important to be funded. And looking at how to accelerate learning, uh, individual differences among students is going to be important. It's also going to be important to understand what it means to accelerate in some areas and in other areas provide additional support where there are, are gaps in the learning. Probably the piece that I don't think people are talking about as much and, and, and they should be talking about is 
what it means to train teachers to do that. You know, we've had a number of concepts over the years that uh, we have flirted with the whole idea of year-round schooling, multi-age classrooms, all of these things are going to have to be put back in the hopper. And to enable a teacher to differentiate across student needs, that's going to be very critical. So I think we're going to have to put a lot more money in teacher training than we have in the past. That's going to be very important. The other piece with the, what we have left, I think it's going to be important. As I said, students learned something this year. The pandemic underscored the fault lines in our society. I think through civics education and other forms of education, where we really talk about who we are as a country, as a history, where we are situated in the world is going to really be important. The issues of Black Lives Matter, though that's considered a political issue, but social justice is something that the pandemic has highlighted in a very, very distinct way. And I think we're going to have to grapple with that in our public schools because, in a, in a sense, creating more just society is what public schooling is all about. All right. I'm going to have to cut you off there. Thank you so much. That was Dr. Hardy Murphy, a clinical professor from the IUPUI School of Education. We also had Dr. Laura Hammack, superintendent of schools in Brown County, and also Doug Ewells, the Richland Bean Blossom Education Association president. Thank you all for a great conversation today. I want to also thank co-host Sarah Whitmire, producer Benta Boutier, engineer John Bailey. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Production support comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.